0: morning. Welcome to our Bible study here this morning. As we continue, it's still officially summer, so we're continuing our summer study in the Gospel of Luke, even if the kids are back at school and college football's back in full uh, force. So a few quick announcements before we begin Bible study this morning. The first is there are handouts on the back by the Bible cart. If you would like a handout and did not get one when you walked in, we do have handouts back there that just have the verses on them and a little bit wider margins if you want to make notes or whatnot. Then the second announcement is starting this Tuesday, uh, our Institute of Theology for the month of September begins. It's going to be a four-week institute led by Dr. Timothy Seleska from Concordia Seminary on the Psalms. And I can personally attest to, as one who uh, had Dr. Seleska's Psalms class at the seminary, it was one of the the best classes I had at the seminary. Uh, He is just truly wonderful when he teaches about the Psalms, not just what they're saying, but then how that relates to us devotionally as Christians, how it builds us up in our faith walk. And so if you're interested in that, I highly encourage you to come. That starts this upcoming Tuesday. And then the second of uh, kind of Bible study announcements is that starting Wednesday, the 15th, we bring back our Living Way Bible study. I know many of you uh, enjoy that Living Way Bible study. If you have not got a chance to get the booklet yet, they are in the East uh, Lobby. The cover looks a little different. It, it doesn't have an updated cover, so it looks almost like a typewriter sort of font, but it is the booklet that we are using uh, for the study. We begin our Living Way study this fall uh, with a look at Ecclesiastes, which uh, you probably mentioned in here is my favorite book of the Bible, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I can't get all into them because this is a study of Luke. However, if you come on Wednesday the 15th, you might hear a little bit, of, little bit about that. So with that being said, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you to this day so grateful for the many gifts that you have given. Grateful for the gift of your word, that your word is not like the word that so often we find in the world that's empty. Rather, your word has the ability to do exactly what it says. And we thank you, Lord, for the many gifts you've given us and the opportunities you've given us to share your word, to share your gospel, your good news of salvation in our lives, that we would continue to do all things for the glory of your holy name. And it's in the name of the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So we continue in Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 32. And just as a quick recap, in case maybe we're not here uh, last week, or just so we don't uh, forget what context this is in, if you look at starting at verse 6, we read a couple uh, narratives of Jesus doing things on the Sabbath. And as he does those on the Sabbath, the Pharisees react, very negatively. And then we're in what's now, or in the section that is known as the Sermon on the Plain, as opposed to the Sermon on the Mount. This is the Sermon on the Plain. And we're about halfway through that, where Jesus has begun talking specifically to his disciples. And we read in verse 20, he lifted his eyes up to the disciples. And that's how he begins this uh, sermon to them. He speaks to his disciples And you'll notice some of the contradictions in how he encourages them to act when compared to the actions that the spiritual leaders, the Pharisees that he's witnessed, have acted against him and what he has done. So Pastor Thomas covered about the first half of that sermon last uh, Sunday, but we start today in Luke 6, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. That statement, that single verse there, really sets the theme for what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, And that is, we are reminded that the love we're called to as Christians, the foundation we're called to as Christians, is not, um, maybe you could even say what comes naturally to us as those with a sinful nature. It is not what the world would say makes sense. Because as Jesus points out, even the sinners love those who love them. In verse 33, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. One really interesting note here in Luke 6:33 is that word benefit in the Greek, it's charis, which is actually the word for grace. Now, Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, how it's being referenced here is not in the traditional sense of what we refer to as grace, but rather it's not that we merit grace. Jesus is not talking about that at all. Of course, our grace is unmerited. It is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's one of the acronyms we use in our our confirmation teaching. But rather, what sort of credit or maybe even what sort of uh, goodwill or or It's kind of a hard work, even like charity, is that to you? What sort of charity is it? What sort of credit is it to you if you only do good to those who do good to you? And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? So again, one of the really interesting things about these first three verses is Jesus says basically the same thing three different ways. And of course, we can look out into our own lives and realize that the world operates in this way. If you take a poll of who likes to watch a particular news network, usually you can have a pretty good guess without even looking at the poll results as to where someone might lean politically. Most of our best friends are those who treat us well. Most often, we like to help those who help us. And Jesus is, is reminding us quite uh, bluntly that that's not the Christian definition of love, of lending, of good, but rather quite the opposite. The Christian is called to go and do good to the one who can't do anything in return. You know, There's no mortgage company in America today that would lend you a mortgage if you were open and honest and said, I'm not, I have no intent in paying you a dime. <laughs> and yet, and even in our own lives, how readily are we able to or willing to help those who have maybe helped us last? How much easier is it for us to feel the generous spirit, if you want to call it that, or show them a loving kindness, a loving service? You, know, you reflect back on your life, and, and that's not to say that you can't do good to your friends. That's not at all that Jesus is saying but it's putting into a framework what Christian love looks like. And of course, this is why I brought out that context. What were the Pharisees doing? Who were they showing good to? Who were they showing love to? Who each other? The righteous? (laughs) Right? Those who were the most faithful or most in agreement with them? Who were they lending to? Probably people who could pay them back with interest. And so you see here, this idea um, comes directly out of what Jesus has just experienced at the start of Luke 6, where he sees the religious, the spiritual leaders of that day saying, this is how God tells us to operate. And the only people they show charity to, the only people they show love to, the only people uh, they show service to are those who operate that way. Jesus calls us to operate in a quite different way. And that's where verse 35 comes in. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Now, if it stopped there, it'd be a very, very, very incredible passage. And it is. But you notice what happens right after he says, and expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Does anyone have an idea of what sort of reward do you think Jesus is talking about? Okay. So are you saying that, that it, it does give us some, and I, I would agree with this, if, I, if I'm understanding you correctly, Paul, that it gives us some sort of moral compass by which we can conduct even our secular life? No, 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 certainly he is not, yeah. No, you're right. He is not saying it's immoral to be a banker. He is talking more about our personal, um, our personal giving. And I would say, in this case, doing business and, and, and acting ethically, it's similar to the epistle lesson. If you've been at the eight o'clock service, James in James 2 says, if you look at someone who comes into your assembly, your congregation in fine clothes and a gold ring and say, oh, come sit over here, you know, and, and put them in the best seat. But then the person behind them, is it in shabby clothing, I think it's how the ESV uh, translates it, and you tell them to you know, go sit in the back or go, go sit over there, you are missing the point of what it means to be in relationship with the world, to love your neighbor from a, a Christ-like love, from a Christ-like worldview. And the same thing is happening here. If you are only doing good, doing righteousness in the eyes of the Lord towards those who are themselves righteous and good back to you or even first to you, then you're, you're misunderstanding what God calls us to do when we were called to show love, to do good, to be uh, charitable, to help and love our neighbor. But back to verse 35, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. Now, if you look at verses 35 or uh, 35, just 35 by itself, who loves his enemies? Who does good without asking for good in return to be done to him? And who gives, knowing he's not going to get anything in return? Yeah, the Sunday school answer, right, Ruth? Jesus. It's interesting, uh, and I hadn't quite thought of this way until I was uh, listening to someone lecture on this. When you read verse 35, that's exactly how God operates. He loves you, Knowing that you are a poor, miserable sinner, <laughs> he does good on your behalf. Knowing that in response, so often we are selfish and don't want to do good things in return, he gives to us his son to pay a debt he knows we could never repay. And that's why uh, the next verse is so perfect Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Now, this. I immediately thought of another parable that Jesus told, but not from the Gospel of Luke, so you'll have to forgive me if you're wanting to only stay in the Gospel of Luke today. We're going to bounce around just a little bit. But one from the Gospel of Matthew. Does anyone, can anyone, does a, a specific parable come to mind? Yes, the unforgiving servant. This servant who owes basically more than the entire GDP of the Roman Empire to his master. And the master just says, all right, I forgive you. And then that sermon, or servant goes out, and exacts revenge on someone who owes him a significant debt, but, you know, about three months' wages, roughly. But nothing close to what his master had just forgiven him. And immediately that came to my mind when I was reading these uh, five verses here, 32 through 36, that we are reminded that uh, God's goodness, God's love, God's giving to us is far greater than we could ever give to anyone. And he has forgiven and looked past more in terms of us, reconciled in that great length, reconciled us to him, forgiven much more than we could ever forgive. And so why would we not uh, do so and do so lovingly? But then, of course, the old Adam, the sinful self, gets in the way. And so often we are caught wanting to show good, show love, do things that, in some way or another, come back to serve us. And maybe it's not always entirely intentional. And I'm not saying that there's no alter, you know, there's no one that's given charitably and with a joyful heart. That's not what I'm saying. But I think it is a time to reflect on how how we conduct ourselves, especially with those, perhaps we could go as far to say we don't like, or especially with those that perhaps we know from the onset, onset, we're not going to be able to get anything from them in return. Uh, that's a great point, Ruth. So the comment was made, it says your reward will be great, but don't we have our reward? Aren't we uh, the children of God? We're just saying God's own child, I gladly say it, it's at the 8 o'clock service, right? Uh, that's exactly right. But one of the helpful passages that I go to with this is 1 John chapter 3. In 1 John 3, uh, John says that, uh, he gives you the right to be called children of God, and so you are. And yet what you will be has not yet appeared. So is our, are we the children of God now? Are you God's child now? Yes. But the full reward, that's the, the tension of the now, not yet, that Paul talks a lot about in like Romans, for example. What we will uh, have for us stored in heaven on that last day is those who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, is not yet fully here. Does that kind of help answer your question, Ruth? All right, yes, thank you. I I did skip over that and I apologize. Right at the end of the verse 35, that last uh, comma there, after most high, for he, God, is kind, the ungrateful and the evil. Yeah, that kind of goes against your natural reaction, that is, but why? I was going to say, at times, it's pretty easy to see ourselves as that prescription, isn't it? The ungrateful and the evil. And in some ways, uh, I think that is the reminder Jesus is giving his disciples that there is no one righteous and pious by their own rights. The Lord looks out and sees that there is no one who is, no one who is righteous, and so he brings his arm for salvation. That's from I think, Isaiah 59, if I'm not mistaken. The end of Isaiah 59 but don't quote me on that. But you're absolutely right that it is hard for us in our own human reason to understand why. Why wouldn't God just simply be good to those who are good? Unless you look at it from a perspective that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, in which case we have all, we all fall into that category of the ungrateful and the evil whom God has shown his kindness to, his mercy to. And that also then kind of, as you put it, Paul sticks in your craw a little bit. Like that's a, It's a hard realization to think of ourselves as that way. Any other question on these first five verses? All right, let's move on to verse 37. And this, um, again, you're going to see this pattern that kind of develops in the sermon where he'll say something a couple of times and then maybe even give the reverse the same number of times. So here I'll just read through uh, verse 38. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, will be measured back to you. This is one of those passages that can be so easily misquoted, misapplied, misunderstood. And in the context of this entire section, and I'm going to make sure we get to the end of chapter 6, because if we don't get to the end of chapter 6, I think we're going to lose a little bit of what this overall sermon, the overall message that Jesus is giving to his disciples and to us who read it is. But I'm going to say this from the outset: judge not and you will not be judged does not mean there is not judgment in the world. It doesn't mean that God hasn't given the government, for example, the power to judge. Condemn not and you will not be condemned does not mean condemnation does not exist. It doesn't mean that all things are good and pleasing to God. And yet that's so often how that little snippet is misapplied and misunderstood. However, Jesus is saying very directly that we as Christians, you are not the judge. You are not the condemner. Instead, what are we? Those who give as it has been given to us. Those who forgive, as we have been forgiven. Reading this verse, I was reminded immediately of the Lord's prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others who trespass against us. What is the point Jesus is making? Don't fool yourself into thinking that because God has forgiven you, you don't need to forgive others. In fact, you're called to a life of forgiveness. And that yes, God is forgiven the judge, the righteous judge, but that is God. And as, though we, as uh, you brought out, Ruth, we are uh, God's children now, we are not God himself. And so in the context, and this is why this is important, in the context, who was maybe doing the opposite? If we were to, to reverse the language and, and take the negations and, and flip them to the things that are affirmed positively and say something like, Judge, condemn, but give not and forgive not. Who would that apply to in Luke chapter 6? I heard it. Yes, that is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They thought their job was to go and judge, go and condemn. And until you conform to their righteous piety, their pious way, you would not be forgiven. And you certainly would not be given to And so if you go back to the the start of chapter six, all this is said with a a specific context in mind. Now, it doesn't mean it's not applicable today. It certainly is, as we've talked about. But here you see how Jesus is instructing his, his disciples to act in the opposite manner to what they have witnessed from spiritual leaders. Now, remember, this is prior to him sending them out, the Great Commission, to go be the church. But here we already see Jesus prepping his disciples that the actions of the church... The actions of God's people look different than what may you may have grown up seeing. It looks different than what you may see your spiritual leaders doing in the Pharisees, or those who are at least propped up as spiritual leaders or as righteous and pious. And he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, again, this is so important to remember the context, because what have the Pharisees done at the start of Luke chapter? I'm going to hit this over and over and over. You're going to know Luke 6 by heart by the time we're done with this. But what's, what, what, did, what happened to Jesus at the first part of Luke chapter 6? The Pharisees told him, why are you doing what is not lawful? The disciple is not above his teacher. What have the G- Pharisees implied by telling Jesus that what he, God himself, is doing is unlawful? Yeah. A disciple is not above his teachers, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And again, I go back to 1 John chapter 3. This is another great example of what you had brought out earlier, R- Ruth, is that uh, we are God's children now, and yet what we will be has not yet Appeared. You can look at any of the number of verses on spiritual uh, maturity in in the epistles to see how Paul talks about how this is a continual process that will not be uh, fully completed, brought to uh, fullness until that day when we're called home to God. What we will be has not yet appeared. And then we get into another very, I'd say, famous few verses that as probably all of you were probably told by your, maybe your parents at some, at least I was, I don't know. Maybe you can relate, but why do you even see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, when you usually hear this, what is focused upon? When you hear this parable ordinarily, what is usually the focus? Sin, okay? Maybe this what what person is usually the focus? The one with the log, right? Yes, the one the one seen as Judge Bentil in this instance. How often? do we quote this parable and remember the last part of that verse? And then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. We so often skip over that part and not that the first part is wrong, but it's not complete. What is the point of Jesus's parable here is not never judge, never correct, never train, never rebuke, never reproof, but rather do so with an entirely different perspective. Not as one who is more righteous than the person you're correcting or rebuking, but rather as one who remembers that you just had a log in your own eye. So often when this is discussed, like you said, Ruth, it's just that first part. The log is what's focused on. But the last part I think is just as important. And then you will be able to see clearly and take the speck, take out the speck, that is in your brother's eye. The speck doesn't remain. And yet so often that's where we think this parable leaves us. Well, we can't say anything because I've got the log in my eye. The speck's not good either. But don't forget what you had forgiven. Don't forget what you had freely given to you. Don't forget those things that God has done for you before you go to your brother and help him with his speck. That bit of sawdust that he's got in his eye. That is, a, that is a, a fantastic point. The point was brought up that when we re- remember the log that God removed from our own eye, what we may have seen or looked at our brother with as a log in his eye becomes just a speck. And I think that's kind of that perspective that I was, I was talking about that, again, that un- thinking to the parable of the unmerciful servant, what is the point of that? Don't forget that your debt is far greater than whatever you may be uh, judging or whatever you may be struggling to forgive or condemning. Yep. So the, the statement was made This this could apply to something like church discipline. And, and I absolutely agree, and especially in our interpersonal relationships. But I think it's a change in perspective, again. And this is a perspective that is so hard for us to keep. I mean, it is just, it is a, and that's why it's such a great convicting passage and a great reminder of what God's done for us. Because so often when we have a friend, let's just say well, we have a friend or a family member that we know is doing something wrong and we want to see them stop because we love them and we want to see them follow uh, God's will for their lives and and his ways. We can come about that in so much the wrong attitude. So often in the wrong sort of disposition. Like, well, you know, since I've always been in church every single Sunday and you haven't been in 18 months, Let me tell you about what you're doing wrong. I'm going to stay out of that, right? (laughs) Yeah. But, But think about how sanctimonious our language has become. That what we feel is our perspective is this sanctimonious, high and pious point of view, and we speak down to the person that we may be correcting or wanting to correct. Can you imagine if just in our language, not only in our church, I certainly think it applies to how we act as brothers and sisters in Christ within our church, but what about just within our lives, within our society, if instead of coming from a sanctimoniously high place, we approach it from a humbly low place? Well, and look at our society. How often are people listening to the other side in any number of issues right now? It may be just a small decimal fraction above 0%, right, of people who are actually listening to either So often we struggle and it's our sinful nature. It's our sinful nature to think that, well, this, that speck is not my speck. And so let me tell you about why I think you need to remove that speck. Why I'm going to point that out to you. Instead of saying, listen, brother, sister in Christ, I know what it's like to have a speck because I had a log (laughs) in my eye. And that again applies for more than just our churchly life but our entire interaction with those in a grocery store, in a shopping center, our family, how many of us have had ever had a disagreement with family, right? Yeah. Just every now and again. Right. Uh, and so I think that's why this is such an important passage to spend the time on that we are in right now and to, and to remember, look at it in the whole context and and to not just look at the snippets that are well-known judge, not lest you be judged. Pull the log out of your own eye before you comment on the speck in your brother's eye. We'll look at it in its entirety. Are there any questions then before we look um, at verse 43? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I think you're right. So the comment was made, do we hide, hide behind those words, judge not? Is that, you know, maybe a reason we sometimes just take that snippet and, and don't look at the whole context of, of Luke 6? And I think it actually works both ways. That there are times we can hide behind the idea of, of judge not, but then we also have to be careful we're not hiding behind, you know, piling on. For example, if someone's down. So yeah, it, it does work both ways. But again, coming from a humble place, a place or a place remembering the log that's been in our eye that God removed, uh, really changes the perspective on how we function. Yep. Yeah, that's a great example. So Joan shared a story where at work, there was someone who took Lord's name in vain, and the, uh, the patient or the coworker, at this, a patient, said, I, I just appreciate if you, you didn't do that. I, I, he mean, Jesus means a lot to me. And the guy apologized. And I think that's a perfect example of what we so often don't see, right? We, we either try and twist kind of the knife of, oh, I've got you. I caught you in something. Now let me really nail you for it. Or as you were mentioning, we could hide behind that. Well, I don't want him to be offended by me saying something. And I know I, eh, you know, it, that's the, the tough tension of this passage. That's the tension for the the difficulty of, of the Lord's prayer. We do forgive those who trespass against us because God has forgiven yes. us. But we also pray that we'd be delivered from evil. And, and so this is not a passage, you know, do not read this saying, oh, well, the Pharisees, I guess, were closer to the truth than <laughs> those who would maybe judge nothing. no. Both, uh, if you go, you know, both are the polar opposites um, and, and the extremes. Where God wants us to be reminded of our own forgiveness that we've received, the love, the grace that we've been given, and from that we then go out into the world. All right, any other questions? All right, I think we're going to get through cha- through chapter six. So I'm happy. Uh, A tree and its fruit, verse forty three. For no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. It's really I think a little bit ironic that we have this in this Luke study because of the epistle lesson for next weekend. I'm not going to spoil that for you so you just have to come back to church next weekend. Um, But that epistle lesson speaks in a very similar manner, a reminder that from out of our heart comes what our tongue says. And I would add to that, from out of our heart comes the actions, the conduct, the character by which we live our life. Now, before you get ahead of me, I know, no, you know, I cannot by my own reason or strength come to know God. And I'm not saying that Paul, you know, was wrong when he said, I don't do the good I want to do. Of course, that's also true. But where are the Pharisees coming from? What, what, where, where is their heart at? It's not on God. It's on themselves. And where is Jesus encouraging the disciples to place their heart, or rather, to allow their heart to be, won by by God himself yeah and so this whole sermon it 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 seems redundant in a way but I think even uh, Jesus himself knew we needed to hear it a bunch of times for us to get it and so out of who we are comes what we say what we do how we treat others and so if the only good we do are to those who do good to us, if all we just live is in a series of quid pro quo relationships across the board, what is Jesus implying? Well, we don't know what God is all about because God loved you without asking for anything in return. If you want this to be a quid pro quo, well, I'm gonna get that right. Quid pro quo relationship between you and God, huh, you're out of luck. You can't make up for what you've done. You can't contribute and in the same measure that God has given to you. And so uh, it's a great reminder from where is the goodness that God calls us to have? loads well, it's from God himself, not from us, not from uh, human institutions, not certainly not from a particular set of political ideas, but entirely, wholly, completely, and fulfilled in the one true living God who sent his son to die for us. Yes. We have a, there is a difference. So the comment was made that someone could easily say the right thing or say what seems to be a pious or righteous thing, uh, but not have that true feeling in their heart. They essentially can lie about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't really want to say this, you know. And there is something to be said of uh, we should act in a manner worthy of God, even when we don't feel like it. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a great quote where it says that uh, when you look at your neighbor and you don't feel like loving them, I'm paraphrasing, um, but if Uh, essentially pretend you love your neighbor and you'll be surprised at how quickly God will move your heart to actually love your neighbor. And of course, and Paul uh, in Romans, it's a great example of when he says, I don't do the things I want to do. Even those who have the good treasures of Christ in their heart, we still say things, we still do things that do not edify, do not honor, do not glorify the gifts that God has given us, the gifts of our life and our salvation. So rather than look at this as just a blanket statement, I think he's speaking more to the intent of the heart and reminding his disciples that this is what good things look like. This is what when good things are from God, here's what they look like. They look like love without expecting love back, forgiveness without expecting anything in return, lending without hoping to have that returned. And, and so he's again kind of providing a framework for what good, what the good treasures of God, what God himself not only how what his action looks like, but how he calls it calls his children to act. Yes. That's right. Not to again, not to spoil anything for those going to ten forty five, but we're gonna hear about that a little bit today in Pastor Thomas's sermon that God's words are not empty words, that his words are able, have the power to do exactly what they say they're going to do. And that includes changing the hearts of four miserable sinners, which is a truly wonderful thing. Even if we fight them sometime on sometimes on. It. All right, uh, and then verse 46. And didn't call me, Lord, Lord, and not, do not do what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke out against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who's, who built a house on the ground without the foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great." Now again, in the context, who do you think he's referring to as, as calling him Lord, Lord? Yes, correct. Even the Pharisees refer to him as Lord, or Rabbi, or Teacher, and, and, and here's one of those things that I think, again, speaks to the heart of where we're at, or where our heart is, is where, uh, our, what our conduct looks like. What was the reasoning or the rationale that the, the Pharisees would try to start a question like that for Jesus? Yeah, they kept trying to trip him up, you know? They kept trying to present situations that in their minds seemed like impossible questions that he would for sure have to do something that would either go against their Jewish law, their Roman law, Uh, Against the cultural norms of the day, you know, whose coin does this belong to, God or Caesar's? That's a a great example. They're not asking him because they want him to give them an answer. They want to see him fail. They want to see him stumble over the question. Yep. it could have been, I I guess, I don't know. uh, I I don't know how well sarcasm travels across 2,000 years in tech, right? I don't know if it was sarcastic or if maybe they put someone up to it and said, well, let's see. Maybe we can finally, if we try really hard, we're not sure. Correct, Obviously. and which is why he calls them out for saying, why do you say Lord, Lord, but you're not going to do what I say? If you believed I was the Lord, or if you believed I, I had authority, you would do what I said. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Uh, and again, the epistle lesson for today in James chapter 2 is a great, another great parallel to this, and that faith produces good works. Now, does that mean we are perfect? No, but it does mean that God, as you mentioned, Joan, transforms our hearts, that it makes a difference to know who Jesus is and what the love of God brings to you and brings to you freely, and that changes, it transforms who we are. We don't just sit here and say, well, that sounded nice, cool, and then just go around like nothing's different. No, it changes everything. It it, it forms a foundation of existence that as Jesus refers to, is like a foundation of the rock. And then, of course, you could go into, well, so what is is the rock or what is that foundation? You could easily bring up what Peter says is, well, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus replies, well, on this rock, Simon Peter, I will build my church. He was like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the floods arose, the stream broke out against it, and that house, and could not shake it because it had been built well. One of the things that I think is so critical to understand about this is the streams hit both houses. There's no house that doesn't go through the flood or the calamity, the disaster, or you could even say the judgment of its building. And it's not as if um, the first house, it was because he was Unable, for example, to build this house on the rock. Or, sorry, the second house. It's not as if the second house who built the house on a foundation that was not the rock or goes without a foundation, that house could not have built it on the rock. But rather, it chose not to build it on a foundation of rock. And so what happened then when the streams came? Well, it crashed against the house and the ruin Of that house was great. I'm reminded of uh, Psalm 146 where Thomas uh, confesses that uh, plans of man fade when they die. Basically the best late do not trust in princes or the schemes of man because they fade. They don't last. The foundation, however strong it appears, does not hold firm. And this is where we talk about God's love for us is different. God's will for us is different in that when we build our house on a foundation, on the rock, on his son, Jesus Christ, it withstands whatever can come its way. Are there any other questions before we get into chapter 7? Well, and I would say this even goes beyond just the storms of life, but remember the context of this is, is judgment. Right? What is that street? What is that that, hey, you know, the man builds his house, and when the time comes for it to be job, it shatters, and the ruin of that house is great. But the one who builds his house on the rock, whose foundation is Christ, whose foundation is God's love for him in Christ and not his own works, what happens in that day of judgment? Holds Not only holds firm, but you're declared righteous. Yeah. The foundation um, is solid. Now, if you think about this, where we were at with the Pharisees, where were they building their foundation? What were they building as the basis for their house? The law, their works, their own ability to be righteously pious. Where is Jesus telling us to build our foundation? Upon who? Himself, yeah. Upon the love that God has shown, the good things that God has done, wholly and entirely upon God and not on ourselves. Was there a question Yeah. Yes, and that's where that framework is so important because if we shape our interactions with fellow man just based on what we witness on earth, it makes sense to do good to the people who are good. Right? But if you shape that, if you have that framework, that outline of life, that foundation that's based on the works of God, specifically the works of God for you, uh, then it, it, it reshapes how we look at the neighbor to our left or the neighbor to our right even when we're annoyed with them. Yep. Yes. A- absolutely. Absolutely. The comment was made, these are not just the Pharisees who may harm themselves, but these are the teachers of the people. These are those um, who are instructing the people of God and would uh, perhaps be leading them astray. And this reminds me, so you just said that I, I almost forgot this point. I wanted to make it, is why is it so critical that Jesus, for that What is important about Jesus' audience, specifically who he's talking to in these verses? Remember, he's not talking to the Pharisees, but he's talking to whom? The disciples. And what is he going to do with those disciples? Send them. That's right. He's going to send them out. And he knows that the temptation is going to be, when he sends them out, to act like perhaps they've seen, unfortunately, their predecessors, the spiritual leaders of Israel, act. And he's calling them to a different sort of action. And if you think about it from the perspective of the opposite of the keys, where uh, Christ gives his disciples the power to forgive sins here on earth, and whatever is forgiven, whatever you forgive here on earth is forgiven, whatever is withheld is withheld, it becomes even a more powerful instruction to them on how they are to conduct their lives in Christ because they are the ones who are going to be sent out and be able to proclaim and pronounce the forgiveness of God, the real true forgiveness of God to not only the people of Israel, but to the entire world. The people who had heard for quite a while will know, we are the chosen people of God, not you. And that framework by which he sends them out is such an important one because it's not what they had witnessed. All right, we've got a couple of hands, both named Steve. So I'm gonna pick Steve in the back and then Steve in the front. Yes, yes, yeah, it's not, he's not asking them to go be the, the, the uh, judge. Now, was judging part of their duty as the church? It's judging part of our duty as, as Christians. Should we judge? Absolutely, but again, it's reframing it, and it's what, how do we judge someone who was, as a baptized child of God, how do we judge the world? By remembering that log in our own eye is by remembering that and coming from that place of humility by which the speck can be removed, or at least we can, in love and kindness, and I mean that, in lovingly, help our brother remove that speck from his eye. All right, Steve? Well, and that's why I think it's such an important thing is that Jesus tells this to his disciples that are going to be the church, and that is the church that exists through the ages. I think it's why one of my favorite days of the year is All Saints Day, where we remember we are connected with all the saints from whom their labors rest. Peter, John, Andrew. Yeah, you know, this isn't a, a, a nice little narrative that, that some people made up. No, these are the real people, the real individuals whom God really gave this instruction to, to go and pronounce that forgiveness that we as Christians uh, relied on, that without which we would not be reconciled to God. Without Christ's forgiveness, there is not that reconciliation. Without Christ's sacrifice for us, uh, we are cut off, children of wrath by nature. And so it, it's, when you think about it from that perspective, it becomes a much deeper teaching to his disciples. Now, it doesn't say, you know, there's not a, I guess, a conclusion that says, and Jesus said all these things, and Matt, remembering that he was going to tell his disciples to go forgive in the stead and by the command of himself. But when you put the connection together, when you look at how he instructs his disciples full in Acts and in the end of the gospels before the ascension to to go out and baptize and to go out and and proclaim um, the forgiveness of sins and to give them that real power as if God himself is there forgiving those sins because he is the forgiver. Then it becomes, I think an even more important instruction in this moment on that sermon to those disciples that probably they realized for quite some time. All right. Now is there any other questions? Anyone else have a hand up? Yes. Yes. Yeah. The definitive, you know, the rock. Now that's why he, I even brought out that connection, right? To the, the, when Jesus says on this rock, I will build my church. The, and that rock is the confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You have to be just a little careful because it's not explicit, but I think it is implied that that rock is the same rock that Peter is confessing. It's the word. It's the foundation of what it means that Jesus came to this earth for us. Uh, what the cross means to us, what Easter Sunday, what that empty grave means to us. All of that encompasses the rock. I would say the entire word of God encompasses the rock. So you don't want to get too specific where the rock is only, you know, it is Christ and the confession that he is the son of the living God, but you can't divorce that from the rest of scripture. And that's what's so cool. I think that's what's so cool about it is that God has built this foundation for us to forgive us, to reconcile us to him, and ultimately to give us everlasting life. And so build our house on that rock and then stand secure. Again, you're going to hear that, you know, do not, do not be afraid, stand strong, do not be anxious, stand strong because we have that rock. Any last questions then before we wrap up, I don't think we can cover the centurion servant in three minutes. So we'll end about two minutes early, but any final questions, comments, uh, I will announce, or I, I will announce now, and that's starting on the 19th, Pastor David Smith. We'll be back and continuing his study of Romans. Uh, I have personally really enjoyed this summer uh, Luke study, and I know uh, the study on Romans was w- well-received, so it kind of gave a nice little break from that. But we will be back. The plan is, and I say that now because well, yeah, you never quite know, but the plan is that perhaps this could be a summer thing for a couple couple years to come to get through the, the Gospel of Luke and then have a, a, a study on Romans or a different epistle during the year. But that will be on the 19th, and... Um, Trying to think if there's any other announcements that I forgot. Oh, the last one. If you look in the good news, there's a food drive challenge on Saturday. It's a fill up the pickup truck challenge. And the details of that are in our good news. There's a Facebook post on it. But certainly, if uh, there are non-perishable food items that you'd like to donate, I would highly encourage you uh, to look up the details for that for next Saturday to get those things um, dropped off either at the church office or bring them on Saturday. And there's some times listed in your good news. So with that, let's close with the word of prayer. Gracious Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, despite the log that is in our own eye from our sin, that you removed that from us, Lord, that you called us to be your children, that you gave us your forgiveness, not expecting anything in return. Uh, you gave us a great price to yourself, your grace and forgiveness. I pray that you would keep us in this faith, keep us in this trust on this foundation, the foundation built on the rock of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.